today changes my whole entire life. Welcome to Gritability, a podcast about the power of perseverance, overcoming seemingly insurmountable odds to attain the life of your dreams. I'm your podcast host, Adam Clausen, and with me in the studio today is the beautiful and ever radiant Ro Clausen. Hello, it's great to be back. I'm excited for this episode. I don't know where we're going to go. Oh, I know where we're going. I kind of know where we're going, but I think I'm going to be along uh, for the ride. Okay. Well, it's going to be a ride as it usually is when it's just the two of us. So yeah, I'm I'm eager to have a conversation today and maybe overcome some of the myths, uh, some of the glamorization of what it means to uh, be part of this prison life, to be a prison wife, or to be that person trapped on the inside. Love it. Yeah. Okay, I'm not going to be long for the ride. I'm definitely. Oh, you were right there. Backseat driving. <laughs> you were right there for all 11 years living that life on the outside. And it's always interesting to me because when questions come up about prison, like you have most of the answers just because of our relationship and the things that were shared. And I got to tell you, the hundreds, at least hundreds, if not thousands of hours that we spent in the visiting room yeah, together talking, you know, about what was happening on the inside, what I was dealing with. And, you know, a lot of times it was about the other drama that was going on, which whether I liked it or not directly impacted my life. And a lot of times it, it affected us. Sure. And there's a couple things that, that bring this to mind. And I want to say first one is you brought up to me, and I had no idea any of this was going on, that there's a, a big thing in the media right now with a star, star couple, and one of them is making some some kind of crazy claims. And, you know, it it has to do with, you know, being involved in the street life and, and everything else that comes along with it. And I found it strange, like, that people really still want to be connected to it. Yeah. So do you want me to give the background? Yeah. Give a little bit of that background. Okay. So Jada and Will Smith, uh, everybody knows the slap story back from the Oscars last year with uh, when Will, slip, Will Smith slapped Chris Rock live during the Oscars. So uh, he went on this like apology tour and Chris Rock just stayed kind of quiet for the year. Everybody said he handled it kind of classy. Well, here we are an entire year later, later, Jada releases a book and now she's going on this press tour and she's saying all these crazy things that are contradicting themselves. And so many people, including celebrities, 50 Cent namely, are calling her out. Like, you got to stop with the bullshit. You got to stop with the lies. And in there, she was saying, and what I picked up on and what I wanted to say back to you where we started our conversation was a lot of the stuff she's saying is like, very um, street, living into the stigma of that, quote, thug life, where she said that she sold drugs and she wanted to be the next queen pin and she was on her way there and she put acting aside because she wanted to literally be a queen pin and she was really good at selling crack. And uh, part of it 
made me feel bad for her. She was really good at selling crap. Yeah, isn't that crazy? And now, please, also, I have to say this. I didn't read the book. This is all accounts of people on YouTube that are making videos in response to her book and what she's saying. And there's people coming with receipts like they always do. But she's saying like she's bringing Tupac into this and how they were a couple and how they were soulmates. And he proposed to her when he was in Rikers. And it's all for this clout. But at the same time, people came with receipts and they're like, he was engaged to another woman who was in Rikers only for four weeks. During those four weeks, which was February 1995, she was with Will (laughs) going on all these like jet setting things. And people have proof of this so the fact that she came and she said this and she's doing these press tours and then it's a lot about like their relationship and that slap but that's I don't even think we want to cover that because I think what we wanted to cover was the fact that she's glamorizing this life and you and I both saw that for many years I saw that from the other half of the prison relationship were going to be Bonnie and Clyde and I would do anything for him and I can't wait to go back and hit the street with him and you know people like literally counting down the days till they can go he could come home and they could continue doing criminal stuff together. And I always, I'm sorry, I'm taking this and I'm running with it, but run with it. I always, when I develop strong prison wives and families was very different because I think I've explained this before, but I'll say it again. When I developed it, it was because I had a void in my life. You and I were in this relationship and I didn't have anybody in my uh, day-to-day life that I could talk to about this because when I tried, people understandably would be like, what are you doing? You know, and they just didn't understand. So I went online looking for something. And when I did, what I found was exactly that people living to the stigma. There wasn't much out there, but what it was, was it kind of like horrified me. Like there have to be other women in my position that want their second chance and they want to put that behind them and they want to live a better life. Yes. People make mistakes and you can forgive them for that. But the fact that now this is not the first time recently, or even the second time recently that I've seen somebody in the public spotlight glamorizing that lifestyle. And it's sad to me. And throughout the years, you've told me that there are people that you ran into that not ran into, but did time with that wanted out of that life and they almost couldn't, or they regretted the fact that they didn't. Hmm. You know, it was interesting. This came up just last night. Uh, part of a program, place that I volunteer, you know this, uh, volunteering with Las Vegas Metro. They have a program, it's called Dream, to help at-risk youth. And last night was a little bit different because I walked in there and there's between 15 and 20 like young kids, middle schoolers. And I'm like, oh man. I was like, these are, these are kids, but they're all kids. Same thing, like acting hard. Yeah. And at that age, like it's an act, like they don't even know. They don't know what they don't know yet. And, you know, it was interesting. The officers that run this program, they're there because they genuinely care. And that's why I, you know, want to be a part of it. I want to help out. I hate the fact that, you know, um, there's just not enough things that are are designed to help kids, you know, steer them on the right path when they're already in trouble. And I know from my experience, uh, you know, there wasn't anybody there to, to really guide me, mentor me, um, and just let me know that they actually cared about what the hell I was doing. Uh, so that's why I wanted to be a part of this program. And, and, you know, sitting in there last night talking to the kids, 
and I was trying to gauge like what their influences were and how much social media and you know how much that factored in because social media wasn't around when I was a kid. Like it was, you know, the people in your neighborhood and those were your direct influences. And nowadays with everything that you see online and, and people create these whole identities, right? Like you can pretty much make up whatever you want to make up and create your own whole new identity, not based on any factual, you know, background. Um, and these kids were hip to that. Like when I asked them what they thought about like influencers, people that they see online, because I'm thinking like they're going to have a list like, oh, these are the people that I follow. And they were like, man, you can't tell nowadays who's for real and who's not. Wow. And I was impressed. I was like, okay. I was like, so, so how do you choose? They're like, I don't know. We're suspicious of everybody. And I was like, wow, well, that's sad too, that kids have gotten to the point where they don't know what the truth is, what to you know, from what they see online. And this has been things that have come up for us um, where a number of times in, in recent history where people around us have portrayed something online, they make it look good, right? And, and I can give you a pretty lengthy list uh, of people who wanted to be hardcore. They're not of people who wanted to be perceived as godly. They're not. As people who wanted to be perceived just as, like, you know, good people, a good guy or a good girl doing these amazing things, and they're putting all this out there behind the scenes, like they're dirtbags, right? So I, I was impressed by the kids kind of sifting through and, and being suspicious but it's also sad that we have to be suspicious. And, and me, by nature, like, I want to see the best in people. Uh, but we've also been burned a number of times as a result of that, admittedly. Uh, you know, and in wanting to see the best in people, it doesn't mean that it's always there. So having to dig through and, and, and find out what the truth is. So when you brought up this situation with Jada and fabricating all of this like I wasn't totally surprised although I do think it's crazy that people want to highlight the negative like somehow that gives them extra credibility uh, but I do understand it everybody wants me to tell like the stories the prison stories all the negative stuff because there's so much interest around it yeah and it's I it's as you're talking, a story is coming to mind. Remember that time we were celebrating a holiday? I think it was Easter at the park with a bunch of people. And this woman that we had never met before didn't know our background. But as soon as she found out about your background, she started like going into this character. Do you remember what I'm talking mm -hmm. about? And it was this like, she was hysterical and it was funny. But on the other hand, I'm like, she literally just went into a character where she had to speak to your inmate I did 20 year side where it was like you were funny before you just went into like sorry I keep using this phrase but it's the one that's coming to mind but like this thug character it was weird why do you think that happened like why hmm. I think there has always been a fascination like with people involved in criminal activity it's why you know everybody's so uh, intrigued by the mob and it's why we have so many movies around mobsters and bank robbers and you know but don't you age out of it? Like Jade is 50 something. That woman was 40 something. 
is it still cool to some people? I mean, obviously this woman's doing this, but. Well, here's, here's the reality. When you've never had to actually live it. That's a good point. That's right? a really good point because you and I, I'm sorry, I cut you off, but you yeah. and I always say, and I said it for years and my girlfriend, Joe, who I'm so excited, I'm going to see her in a couple of weeks, but we used to kind of like team up and she was bad cop and I was good cop, but she loved to take that role. And we would be like, first of all, you and I would always say like, this is a sorority or a fraternity I never wanted to belong to. But now that I do, like I have all of the knowledge, but it's a literally, I would always say like, I want to trade in my lifelong membership to this quote elite club that I have no desire to be in anymore. And you're right. And Joe would always say she would be, well, we would kind of double team people and be like, honey, you don't want to be here. But now that you're here, we're going to tell you like it is. And that's the thing. You're right. It's easy to glamorize something, but at the end of the day, that lifestyle is going to either lead you into the ground or prison. And when you come out of prison, the other side, I'm telling you both sides, myself included, we all have trauma. It's not a fun mm. way to live. It's not. And that see, that's the reality. There's two things I want to touch on there. The first part is my experience, you know, in dealing with, I, I don't know, I can't put a number on it. But, um, you know, at the time, and I didn't really think of it, there are individuals that I've, you know, gotten close to over the years that are, you know, people in books and movies and, and all of those things that have been glamorized. And I'll tell you this, although people on the outside looking in, you know, hold these individuals in such high regard, they're like, man, like that dude's such a gangster. I saw him, you know, on the holidays mm. when he when he was crying about literally tears running down his face, not being able to be there for his daughter. Yeah. And I'm smiling because it's reminding me of this story where <laughs> I came to visit you one time and I'd been coming for years at this point. And, you know, I was always friendly, exchanging smiles and pleasantries with the cops, the, the COs that would walk us in and out of visit. So they would wait and there was this long line or like a kind of like a small mob of people that they would take. And you had to walk from one building and you walk down this short walkway to the front building and that's where you were kind of like released to leave visit so we're on this little walk and this young woman she was probably early 20s she's going oh my god whoa it's just like you see on tv it really is just like tv this is whoa and she's looking at other people for kind of like a yeah yeah and the cop who was maybe i don't know 10 feet in front of me turns and he makes eye contact with me and he makes this like what the fuck face and I was like I just kind of giggle to myself but that's exactly it it was just like she was living her wildest jail visit fantasy I guess yeah and that lasts about that long and there is no good fantasy in jail visiting room <laughs> let me just tell you nothing like that happens yeah un unfortunately at least never did for us never did not even close but um, the reality is that, you know, the majority of people that, you know, are living that life that end up in that situation, it's very different, um, you know, being on the other side. When the consequences hit, you know, most people aren't ready for that. Um, I've watched guys, you know, crying on the phone. Stone cold gangsters crying on the phone because, you know, they're stuck. They're, they're in a situation that, you know, there's no good way out for them. They're either going to do life or they're going to cooperate. 
Yeah, it reminds me of there's a man that we follow on social media who I absolutely love. His he goes by Wallow, W A L L O. And I think he did some time and he came out and he speaks to this so well. And we found a post from him the other day and I'm going to butcher it cuz it was a while ago, but basically he was like, you know, you want that street life and these are your homies, but who's going to be by your side when you're on the jail phone and you need somebody to give you money and your girl is with your best friend and you can't blame her because she's lonely cuz you left her there on the street and mm. your bro, like your homie turned on you and he ratted you and whatever and he just did this list of stuff and I was like ooh and remember I, if you remember anything from it just say because I don't but you were just like yeah that's the reality that's how it is and you think you're big and bad and tough on the street until you're the guy sobbing on the holidays mm -hmm. because you're alone and I'll tell you this I never met a single person who said it was worth it ooh never once never once you know, um, every person that ended up on the other side, and especially those, I mean, you know, I belong to that strange fraternity that there is so much interest and such a fascination around when you're a lifer, when you're someone that's got that kind of time, it's different. It's, it's a different experience. Um, and from that group, like, man, it's just a lot of regret. I can't tell you how many people came to me, you know, and confided to me that they wish they would have done things differently, you know, and that they knew that it was too late at that point, but if they could take it back, they'd do it different. And, you know, many of them, even in prison, had certain reputations, you know, as gang leaders, leaders of organizations, different things. And they were like, man, I wish I never got into this. Like, it has to be exhausting. And that's exactly what it felt like. Like they were just tired. They were tired. They didn't want to do that anymore. They were like, man, I'm stuck. I'm stuck in this life in prison. Like there is no way out for me. And that's not the message that anybody else gets on the outside. Right? Like, you see the glamorized version. You see, you know, it all looks good. And I talk about it all the time. Like when I was out there running the streets, you know, my peer group, like everybody who looked at me, they're like, wow, what a great life. He's got all these drugs. He's running from club to club. Like it looked like a very glamorous lifestyle. But man, even during that, like it was so cold. It was so empty. And then ending up in prison for all those years, it was like, man, like I wasted my life on this. Like who wants this? Yeah. And I think that, I mean, watch the shows we do like enjoy them, but don't, I think the point we're trying to make is don't try to replicate it or lie and fabricate these stories that you're part of it because it's just not, it's just not fun at the end of the day. <laughs> I'm yeah, telling you from like, somebody who did it. Well, I didn't do time, but did time on the outside. Well, you know, and that's the other the other part of this, you know, I don't mind pulling somebody's card, like when they're full of shit. That's, <laughs> I've met plenty of those people in prison too, you know. That'll that, pull paperwork, you mean? What do you mean? No, that, you know, come with a story. Everybody's got a story and they were this guy on a different yard and I did this and I did that. And the thing about prison is like that stuff comes out. And even now, as we're seeing on social media, it's the same thing. Like you might get out there and, and people might believe you for a minute and 
But eventually it catches up. The paperwork catches up. The statements that you made, the, the real, the truth, you know, from the other people who are actually there, all of that comes out. And I've watched that unfold time and time again, you know, and man, a lot of times it's really disappointing. Um, but at other times, you know, I, you know, I'm almost like relieved to see it because it's always those people that are acting so hard that are generally the ones that have something to hide. Oh, sure. Just like all aspects of life, right? And, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. To go back to the way we started this, right, with Jada, I I don't remember if I said this to you in the car or I said this on this podcast right now, but I'll repeat it if I said it already. I believe what she's doing is out of sheer insecurity. And just like what those guys are doing is either sheer desperation or sheer insecurity. True. I would go with that. And I would say, you know, when you're in a bad situation, you know, um, a lot of times you try and make the best decision. And I'm going to say for some people, they think that, you know, creating an image or, or going along saying something like that's the best way to, to deal with it. Um, but that's the reality, right? I, I want to actually back up to something with, because you had mentioned the trauma and that's really what this is all about. You have individuals who come into anybody that comes into the system is there's going to be some serious trauma. There was a, a young boy that I was speaking to last night, um, you know, trying to convince him same thing. Like the officer's telling him, he's like, man, listen, you think you're tough. You're not tough. He's like, you're a kid. You need to be doing things that kids do. Kids bringing brass knuckles to school. He had a bag of weed and like, this is what got him like kicked out, whatever the situation was. And here's this skinny little kid. He's like 10 years old. And I'm like wanting to be this, this image where he got this image of what he thought he needed to do and the way he needed to act to be tough um, and who he was trying to impress. And I'm like, man, this poor kid. And I looked at him and I said, listen, nobody, Nobody deserves to be put in cuffs, right? Like, that's not where you want to be. You don't want to spend the rest of your life controlled by someone else. But ultimately, like, that's the path that you're headed down. Like, that's just a terrible way to live. And that immediately set in motion. And what I was trying to explain to him was, the more you subject yourself to these situations the more baggage, the more trauma you're going to have over time. I said, you know, I might look like I've got it all put together at this point. I don't look like I did over 20 years in the feds and another almost four years in the state. You know, that's a good portion of my life. I said, but you know, there are other things, man, it left marks on the inside, but I will say I'm very fortunate. I don't have the residuals like those outward effects that pretty much every single other successful formerly incarcerated person has that I know. And these are all people, people that we're close with. And, you know, I made it a point while I was on the inside 
to find those individuals that I thought were incredibly successful, had done their time in, in a way that I could look to them for, for guidance. I could emulate what they did, who they became, and use that as a guide for me. Um, and I was fortunate. I was able to build relationships with a lot of these people. And those relationships have continued. And over the years that I've been out and the conversations that have been had, every single one of them has trauma. And what's interesting to me is I believe every single one of them, their trauma is expressed in a different way. Mm, interesting. True. Very true. Um, All very negative. Yeah, there's there. I, I'm going to say there's there's no real positive way to express trauma. The best you can do is to try and find some sort of constructive outlet to make sure you get therapy, to make sure that you're doing what you, whatever you need to do to address that. Um, but man, how it can impact your life, like for you know for the rest of your life and all of the people around you having to deal with that. And it's interesting because I try and frequently check in with you to make sure because, you know, I think I'm all right, but I think you are better positioned to assess whether or not I'm all right. And so I find myself frequently asking, I'm no, like, yeah, very frequently, literally two nights ago. And yeah. we didn't even know we were going to talk about this on the podcast. And you asked me, do I, am I, displaying anything is there trauma am i okay am i doing anything weird yeah because we have friends whose significant others will will put things out there like he still sleeps this way you know what i mean like or has to have his back all the time to the room and i keep telling him like you're not in prison anymore 20 almost 30 years later yeah like wow i understand it though because of the conditions that you guys were exposed to for year after year after year. And I can only imagine like a day or two of that is traumatic, but year upon year and you have to harden yourself and harden yourself. So I understand it. You know what I don't understand is the fact that you came out without any, I don't know how you did it, but my honest answer was like, no. And I sit there and I think about it and I assess it myself. No, you don't have any. It's remarkable. I was going to say, I can explain uh, at least to as as best as I can, I say this that I was very conscious of the trauma or the unresolved uh, issues trauma that I had coming out of prison at age twenty one eighteen to twenty one listen i uh the whole experience from start to finish was traumatic, right, like everything you would think about prison. And it was just, and I went to a youth correctional facility, which somebody had the bright idea that you put all the young people together, you know, 18 to 30. You can imagine what that was like in prison. Um, And it was just, man, it, it was just, it was a rough experience where I didn't get any of the real help or support that I needed. And when I walked out the door, I mean, I'm not ashamed to say I, I share this uh, because it's part of my story. I walked out the door and you know who was there to pick me up? I mean, I do. Mom, you know, and that's what I share with these kids because it's generally mom that brings them to these programs. 
And I said, yeah, my mom. My mom was the one person who was there to come pick me up. And as we're driving away from the prison, you know, tears just start streaming down my face. And I don't know what the hell is going on. And I look at my mom and my mom, I see panic. And when she responded, she said, what's wrong with you? What I heard was anger. Mm. Honestly, looking back, what it more likely was, was fear. Because she didn't know what was wrong with me. She didn't know how to deal with me. She's like, Jesus, like. You're supposed to be happy. You just got out of jail. Yeah, like this is supposed to be a joyous occasion. He's out five minutes and he's crying and something's wrong here. And I don't know what to do about it. And I sure as hell didn't know what to do about it. Um, so I went back to doing what I had always done to, to mask that, to cover it up. Went straight back to, to the drinking, to drugs, to, you know, all those other things to numb that so that I didn't have to deal with the underlying issues. Um, and it just compounded everything, made everything worse. Uh, so that I never addressed that until I found myself sitting in that cell with a life sentence. And then, then like when there was no other alternative, like I had to face myself in the mirror, begin to look inward and figure out why I kept doing this stupid shit over and over again, put myself in this situation uh, that led to a life sentence and ultimately, it was at that point that I started to acknowledge what that trauma was, the things from my youth that, you know, uh, my unfulfilled needs, the need for love to, to feel accepted, to belong. Uh, and I never even expressed any of that in a healthy way. But once I started to get in tune with all of that, then I could like address it and start to figure out how to move forward. And it stuck with me, that car ride home, and that first visit to the grocery store that was completely overwhelming to where I had such bad anxiety, I had to literally run out of the grocery store and sit outside, find some physical space and just chain smoke cigarettes until my mom came out. Like, <laughs> that's not coping, that's not dealing with it. But that stuck in my mind and I said, man, like, I want a second chance, but I was very conscious of when I get a second chance, I need to make sure that I'm okay. Because anybody that I've seen who's done any serious amount of time, they're pretty screwed up. Yeah. They're pretty screwed up in prison, let alone when they get out. And you see the movies like Shawshank Redemption, right? Mm. Guy gets out after all those years and he doesn't know how to cope. The old man, not the guy the story is about. Yeah, the old man. He doesn't know how to cope, right? Just, it's foreign. So, you know, he, he ends it. And I have seen that manifest itself, whether people, you know, look to kill themselves quickly mm. or do it slowly, right? Good point. Because there's different ways self-destructive, self-defeating behavior. And that's the reason we have the rate of recidivism that we have. It's because everybody coming out of the system comes out damaged. What we do to people on the inside leaves marks. It leaves scars, right? And the vast majority of us 
are not at all equipped to deal with that. I was fortunate. I was fortunate to have access to the information that helped me, to have people around me who supported me on not only dealing with that, but really helping to move me forward and in the process to become a different person, to leave all that behind and to look back and not laugh, but go, man, like that's crazy to think I used to be that way. I used to think that way. So when I hear about someone who wants to glamorize all of that, it's a little frustrating to me, right? Because I've worked so hard to get past it. And that seems to be the the part that everyone's most interested about. Like everybody's interested in the bad stuff, you know, but nobody wants to talk about, you know, the effects that all of living that life actually have on you. And it's not just on you. Because as those things manifest themselves, you know, uh, that trauma, it's the people around you. Like, they got to deal with you. And a lot of times that emotion spills out onto them. And man, you're creating just a, a negative, a hostile environment. Whether you mean to or not, it's because that stuff hasn't been dealt with. Sure. And then if you're dumping that on children, or if that's what children see, mm, yeah, what do they do? They emulate. Yep. I mean, children, children are, children will mimic exactly what they see. And believe me, I get it. it. You know, with our son, he feels like I know when I'm frustrated. I mean, we've seen him do this, right? He'll take something and throw it down like frustration. I'm like, mm, that wasn't his frustration. He, he got that from me. He felt that I was frustrated and he acted out. He's being empathetic. Yeah. Ah, I love that he's empathetic, but it forces me to be even more conscious. Like, what am I passing on? Sure. That. And also children want to make their parents proud, no matter what that means. And I think if you're living this or trying to glamorize this thug life and you're living that, and I'm sorry, I keep using that word, but it's the one that's coming to mind. Children are going to emulate that because they want you to be proud of them. Look, I'm just like you, daddy. Just like you, mommy. Mm. And what are you doing? You're creating that vicious cycle for what? Yep. Yeah, kids are going to repeat what they see. And unfortunately, you know, um, when you have a parent in, in prison, that's all they're going to see. Like, you can try and do your best from a prison visiting room or, you know, send some cards, but they're, they're going to associate that with what they see in the media and, again, what's glamorized. And they don't see all, you know, how harmful it really is. I mean, they experience a part of it, but, you know, children don't have an accurate view. So, so yeah, there's recently there's been quite a bit of, uh, or quite a number of incidents that have really caused me to pause, you know, and make sure, like I've been home three years now, um, Am I okay? Am I doing all right? Like, I think I should be doing a lot better. I should be further ahead. Um, should, you know, is relative. Uh, it's nice to have people that give me feedback and say, man, you did all that in three years. You look like you're doing really well. And again, social media, if you look at our social media pages, like you see all the good stuff. 
And again, people don't see the challenges. They don't see the struggle. I just think that we are much better equipped to deal with those challenges and to deal with the struggle. And as a result, it doesn't take up as much time or as much space in our lives because we've done this before. Yeah, it's a silver lining. It's a silver lining that from an unfortunate situation (laughs) that I hope people don't purposely put themselves in. It's the way that we chose to see the positive in a really dark situation. But yeah, I mean, we, and that's what I think helped, right? Helped us avoid that trauma and living, you know, depressed every single day was that we grasped. And when we found it, we had to white knuckle the positives in our situation. Yeah. Listen, you don't have to go through the experience that we went through to have the relationship that we have. There's other ways to get here. Yeah. Better ways, more healthy, because unfortunately, I mean, if we look at the, the number of couples that we've known throughout the years, how many of them have that happy ending? Not many. It's not that many. Yeah. And, and certainly by numbers, I mean, there are so many people incarcerated, many of them for very short periods, and the relationship doesn't, you know, is not able to survive that period because it's stressful, puts a lot of stress on the relationship. Um, but we've been very fortunate and, and obviously we are now much better equipped, much stronger as a result of those experiences. And that's what gets us through the challenges, the tough times. Uh, unfortunately there aren't, there aren't too many of those. Yeah, I agree. And I feel like this is kind of like a low energy, not depressing, but like, it's just not our normal episode, but I think it has to be that way because this is like the exhaustion that you're going to feel if you choose to run after or glamorize that life. I get it's like a cautionary tale type of a situation. Definitely a cautionary tale. Um, because (laughs) it all ends in the same place. Um, we've got a lot more positive to promote at this point, you know, and I, I think that's what we choose to focus on. So although we occasionally come on here and we'll tell some good stories, um, some of them are funny. Some of them are not. Um, maybe how are we looking at on time here? Cause there's one more that does come to mind. Um, that basically demonstrates a lot of what I'm saying, you know, that regret people that sign up for that life, right? Throughout the time that I was in prison, you know, there were a number of situations that came up that allowed me to see who was who, who I could really count on. Like, and I'm gonna be honest, like when the knives come out and you see unfortunately, who's really got your back. And I mean that quite literally. And I hope, you know, if you're listening to this, that you don't ever have to deal with that situation. Because I mean, like, I can, like, I feel it. I can feel the stress even just thinking about this one situation in particular where I was standing across from a guy, had a knife wrapped literally to each hand. They were taped so that when he started stabbing someone that they would not come loose. Makes me nauseous. It's crazy, but it it shows you how serious someone is. And I remember in that moment thinking, man, this is crazy. Like, this is where I am. Like, I don't want, I want to live. 
I know that the numbers are so stacked against me, like my chance of survival, and this is reality, my chance of getting out of here alive are very, very low. But there was a dude that had my back. There was a couple guys that literally had my back. We're standing right there, but the one in particular is on my back, and he's like, man, you ready? And he, he was ready, like ready to go. And he was ready to go because he was there behind me. He was there, you mean, to protect you? What do you mean by that? He was there personally because, like, he was like, man, I am with you okay. through this, knowing that this could be the end. We were not part of the same gang. We were not, we had no affiliation like that. It was just a personal thing. Like, And just to clarify, you were never part of a gang. Never part yeah. of a gang, but he was. Right, right. He was, which is, you know, a strange twist in this. A number of these other guys who, who lined up and got behind me, they were part of gangs too. And at some point in time, each one of them expressed to me outside of this situation you know, not only that they had my back, but man, they really regretted, you know, signing up for that life, being this far in and not seeing any way out. They're like, I'm, I'm stuck. This is my life. And this was demonstrated when like I knew that they were so far in. I knew that they wanted out. I saw them, you know, trying to do the right thing. They were on this routine, doing well. And a guy comes to me and says, hey, man, I got to tell you something. He goes, you know, your guy so-and-so. He goes, man, there's a guy down the chapel that said he's no good. And I said, oh, my heart sunk in that moment because I knew that that, what he had just told me, was about to set in motion a chain of events that was ultimately going to harm a lot of people. It was going to pull him off this, this path, this good path that he was on, that he had worked so hard to establish for himself. It was going to affect him, the guy who said this. There was going to be repercussions. And as a result, there's going to be other people involved. So just by this one guy saying something, you know, I knew that the rules of the game, right? That's it. That's the game. That's what everybody wants to be in. You know, that's what we're glamorizing here. The rules of this game dictated a certain outcome. And although nobody wanted to have to do that, including myself, like I was now involved so immediately as I get that information, I said, man, he goes, but I don't want you to say anything about it. And I just looked at him. I said, you know, that's not possible. I said, what you just told me, I have to pass that on. Like I'm obligated. I have to. So, and this guy's trying to backtrack now. I'm like, no, no, stay here. I appreciate you telling me but you're gonna to need to relay this again. I said, give me one second. I opened the door to my cell, I looked down the range, and he felt me looking, leaned back and looked right at me, and I just waved, I said, come here. And I could see his body language just 
cave in. Like, he knew. He knew from whether it was the look in my eye, the way that I just motioned him. You're not very good at hiding your emotions. I'm not. I'm not. You can read my emotions. Like, I'm, and you know, sometimes there's benefit to that. Sure. But I wasn't trying to really convey anything. And maybe it was just he saw the sadness. Like, I was. I was immediately sad. Um, he put up his radio, came down, stepped into the cell, and this other guy's still there. I said, tell him what you told me. So he conveys. He said, man, you know, so-and-so is down the chapel, and he says, you're no good. And I looked at him. Now, I know the story. I know the background on this guy who's running around talking smack because I was there the day that he came into the facility and asked this guy to take a walk because I went for that walk with him around the track, you know, new compound guys trying to, you know, make sure that they're on solid ground. They're not going to get run off. And I heard this guy share his story about what he was doing. He was messing around with this punk back in the hole, you know, had this whole history of being a homosexual that he was trying to keep undercover and he had this whole new image of who is going to be on this compound and tried to keep all that quiet. Well, like all things, you know, it came out. You can't, can't be this hard guy out here and be back there. And be yeah. visiting your wife and your kids in the visit room. Oh, yeah, that too. And, and trying to be something else, right? So that all caught up with him. He was feeling some kind of way about it and tried to turn it back on my friend. Right. And started calling my friend no good. And this is how we end up in the cell. Because he thought that your friend would expose his secrets from the place before. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He was, he was trying to put something bad out about him. Yeah. To counter. Sure. All of his past, his baggage. And, you know, when this was conveyed, like it wasn't that disappointment that I saw in his body language initially like that was the only tell when he came into the cell, he was already like, he had already steeled himself, right? Like the resolve was there. He's like, give it to me. What's in, you know, what is it? Hey, this guy said this. And he's like, all right. He goes, listen, I'm just going to need you to convey this to one other person, this other gang person, gang leader, let him know this is what it is. He goes and and that's it. And the guy's like, man, I don't want to be involved in this. And I'm like, <laughs> too late. Like you're in the middle of it. You just need to convey that and don't worry about the rest of the situation. And that took place over the next couple hours. The other person was brought in. A plan was set in place. And everything that my friend had worked for over those two years to get to where he was, everything good that was happening for him, all of that in that instant, because that guy made that one public comment. That's Be that's what that life is about. Because in prison, you have to. There's a set of guidelines, or there's a set of guidelines. Or, there's a set of rules, and there are very clear repercussions. And when someone says that, that you're no good, and especially if you're a certified gang member, like that needs to be resolved. And there is only one way to resolve it, and it did. I watched them go out on a move because this guy's on the other side of the compound. The compound split. I watched them go out on a move. 
the following day. I didn't know exactly what the plan was. Like, that's not my place. I didn't need to know it. And it's not something I could be involved in because I'm not in that gang. Uh, these are their rules. And he went out the door on this move. And I knew that they were trying to get over to the commissary. And they did. He and two others. They went over to the commissary where this guy was like not a care in the world, unsuspecting, seated on the floor over by the window. You know, I had people tell me about the whole situation who were in there. And he went in there. And at this point, I think he was just angry that he felt like he had no choice that he had to resolve this situation and do it the way that he did. And I think that anger poured out of him even more so. Like it wasn't something that he wanted to do, but he knew that in having to do this, it was throwing away everything that he had worked for. And he took that anger out on that guy and stomped him almost to death. Um, I sat up there in the window on the housing unit across the yard waiting for the deuces to go off. You know, when they send in the team and back up and lock it down. And when that didn't happen, like I was worried. I was worried because I knew that I knew it was, it was going down. It had already gone down. There was no question about that. The fact that no one had been alerted to it means it's probably still going on the longer it goes on, the more likely it is that this guy will end up dead, that he will not survive. And I was sitting there watching out the window, and as crazy as this might sound, I was praying to hear the alarm go off because I certainly didn't want to see that outcome for him, right? For anybody involved. For anybody involved. I didn't want to see this poor guy you know, killed because he made a, a, a dumb, dumb statement that he knew he shouldn't have made. And for this guy who felt, who knew like, hey, he signed up, he's part of this gang and, and these are the rules and this is how we live. He had to carry that out. Um, you know, that's the cause and effect. And when they called the move and everybody filed out, I watched because... <laughs> People weren't too discreet about it. And, you know, that's one of the rules you're supposed to, like, if you see something going down, like, just be cool, walk away. People, when they got out the door, cleared the metal detectors, were moving really, really fast to get to the units. Be you want, sorry, go ahead. Because everybody knows at this point, we're about to be locked down. Try and get to the showers, get what you need. And the faster they're moving, the more I'm thinking, mm, this is serious. And it was, I mean, they had just about killed him. And at one point he regained consciousness and they put him back out. It's amazing that he survived. I'm grateful that he did for everyone involved. But you know, that friend of mine, like that was it. Um, that changed, you know, the rest of, his time, uh, and it's just, it stands out very clearly in my mind, you know, when people talk about, there are people who are about that life, right? And if that's what you want, like, 
that's what comes with it. And, and what, sorry. there is always going to be regrets. Yeah. And I mean, there is absolutely nothing normal about the situation that you just explained. And there is no wonder that people that live through that, even just passing that and having to not stop and help somebody that's inhumane. I know that's just the way that you have to live inside a prison, but there is absolutely no wonder that there is so much trauma, right? But also you made it very easy on me being the outside half of our prison relationship because if I didn't hear from you for a couple of days, my, the first thing on my mind wasn't, he could be dead. He could have gotten in a fight. He could have gotten, gone to the hole. Was that always a possibility? Unfortunately, yes. But that's just because it's always a possibility if somebody's in prison. But unfortunately for a lot of these women on the outside or sons or daughters, you know, not just significant others, but the loved ones in this person's life, that is a very likely scenario. What took place in that story is a very likely scenario at any given moment in their lives. And there is nothing to glamorize about that. That is so sad if you're like, yep, that's what I signed up for and that's what we're going to do and we're going to be Bonnie and Clyde and this and that. If that's what you signed up for and that's always an anxiety in your life, that's sad, but I get it. But if you're doing it just because it's cool or Jada, you want to be a queen pin, get the fuck out of here. Excuse me, but that's just not a way to live. It's not. And, you know, it's... Whew. I don't think often about, you know, those stories, those situations. It's not stuff that I generally like to bring up, except in a case like this to demonstrate like that's not normal. That's not a anybody who aspires to live like that. You have no idea what you're asking for and you don't. And I always said to those those girls from my position, like I said earlier in the episode, I would gladly trade places with you if you have an outdate. And that's what you want. I will give you my lifelong membership to this club. Mm. I don't want it. Well, thank God we are on the other side now. That That is all in the distant past. And these are now memories and stories that we can share. And we're not living this anymore. And we are definitely, we are definitely part of a small, very small fraternity, sorority of individuals who, like myself, had life sentences or like yourself were serving life on the outside who now get to enjoy and have such a great appreciation. Unlike most people will ever, ever have a chance to experience, we appreciate life more uh, than you can imagine and so grateful to have the life that we're living today. Um, so grateful to be here with you, to share those experiences, to talk about how far we've come, and to talk about where we're going. This has been another incredible episode of Gridability, the power of perseverance, overcoming seemingly insurmountable odds to attain the life of your dreams. I'm your podcast host, Adam Clausen. And I'm Ro Clausen, and I just have a request for you guys listening, wherever you're listening, I'd love if you'd leave a comment and let us know what you think of this episode, because it's a little bit different from what we traditionally talk about. And like part of me halfway through, I'm like, I don't know if we should scratch this one or not. So let us know what you think. All right. We'll see you back here on the next episode.